Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Hola, Jenna. Hola, Bartolomeo. I'm saying hola because we watched some Spanish language movies this week. Oh, is that why? Yeah. We watched some movies from Mexico, a place where uh, we haven't been too much. I've been there. Speak for yourself. I've actually never been there physically. I went there when I was like five, six. I would like to go back. I bet it's nice there. I bet it's warmer than it is right now where I am in Chile, Maine. You know what they have there, Bart? They have great lizards. Iguanas. Big old iguanas. I like lizards. Lizards play a role in some of the movies that we're talking about tonight. And they are so cute. I saw Kawada Mundi there. You ever, oh, yeah? you ever Google one of those guys? I know what it is. It walked right through the beach. Like, just it didn't give a shit. It just walked right past. And we were like, what is that? And some guy called it a mapache. And we were like, <laughs> like what's a mapache? And I realized it actually means raccoon in Spanish. Mm. And Kawada Mundi is like kind of a raccoon. Are you sure it wasn't a chupacabra? I'm pretty sure it wasn't. <laughs> from the fur but you know because uh that's my way of introducing our theme for tonight chupacabra of course is, is spanish for goat sucker and it's a uh punk rock band and a latin american bigfoot monster that likes to suck goats we don't have any of those tonight but we're talking about mexican horror films <laughs> speak for yourself we don't have <laughs> and uh this is a double whammy i chose this subject as a challenge I mean, Jenna was saying, you know, neither of us are really into horror that much, so we've kind of avoided it, so we need to do some horror. And I said, okay, let's do horror and let's do Mexican films, two things I don't know a whole lot about. Put them together and, and we've got tonight's episode. And to top it all off, I did uh, almost no research at all for this episode. <laughs> no, but this is good. I have a reason. I said, mm -hmm. I couldn't find a whole lot of material, you know, right off the bat. And I said, no, you know what? I'm just going to watch a whole bunch of Mexican horror films from the 60s. And I'm going to draw my own conclusions. I'm going to pick six of these that I feel are representative of what was happening with that genre in that country at that time. And Jenna's going to yell at me for picking the wrong movies. But, uh, <laughs> but that's what I did. I watched 10 movies all the way through, um, sampled maybe five others. And picked six, and uh, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. I feel like it demonstrates a nice range of what uh, was going on there. But uh, Jenna really just wanted to watch, you know, all twenty four Santo movies that came out in Mexico at that time, or something. Like she didn't like the range. She said, "Well, this this schlocky horror movie where a guy sucks people's brains out with his tongue has nothing to do with this." movie that's based on a classic piece of Mexican literature. And I said, just wait. 
it'll all come together. <laughs> I'm still waiting. Here's the thing. So because of the fact that we don't know very much about Mexican movies, and especially not horror movies, for us to come at this, which I was very happy to do, and I will say that, th that this experience has really opened my mind to an entire genre and world of cinema that I've been ignoring, so I'm very happy about that. But like, unlike, say, our Polish movie episode, where we sort of rant, you know, we say art house, and we just picked a bunch of shit, but like, that felt a little more specific because we've seen collectively more movies, you know, or like, you know, France or whatever. It's like I've seen more of these movies, so I have a better understanding of like, oh, yeah, these are like the ones to, to start with and then you, you know, move on from there. So like for this, this feels a little Bart's choices feel a little bit random. <laughs> some of them are really good and some of them <laughs> I'm going to need you to explain to me, but. Everything was fun. Well, here's the thing. There is actually very little Mexican horror overall that is available with English subtitles. You know, there's a another batch of this stuff that was dubbed into English and is available to watch that way. And I tried to avoid those. Those are mostly schlocky, uh, you know, tasteless psychotronic type things. I wanted to be a little little classier than that. And that kind of restricted, you know, what I had to choose from can only watch what we can watch. I'm sure that there's a whole lot more out there than what we're going to talk about, but it's hard to see. What I'm talking about is really representative of what you can see of horror movies from Mexico from the 60s right now. So so if you're a programmer and you want to like blow <laughs> some minds, here's the movies that you shouldn't do <laughs> and go pick something that doesn't exist that exists without subtitles. At least three of these movies are really good. No, these were all these were all fun. Uh, <laughs> they were good. I just I I need <laughs> I need a Bart explanation for the connection. But well, I'll give a hint here. The idea is I wanted to kind of contrast the more lowbrow kind of universal monster movie inspired horror movies of the earlier '60s with the more European feeling art house atmospheric horror films of the later 60s. I mean, as I said, I haven't read much from critics of this stuff, people who do know a lot about this. But from what I've seen, I, I can say that there really is a trend over the course of the 60s and the, the genre changed. And I wanted to and, and we're, we're going to see that. The first movie we're going to talk about, however, is one of the most beloved Mexican films, period. It's The Skeleton of Mrs. Morales. Directed by Rogelio A. Gonzalez, and written by Luis Alcoriza, who wrote nine of Buñuel's Mexican films, including Los Olvidados and uh, Exterminating Angel. So right out of the gate, we're sort of defying this arc that I sort of prescribed for this episode. But it's from 1960, so I wanted to start with it. And it's a great kind of dark comedy horror film. This was actually, I was glad that you chose this. this. 
as a first one, this one definitely uh, got my attention because it reminded me, and again, maybe this is my own biases, and I'm sure there's many people that are going to be like, how dare you? But it reminded me of Italian movies. (laughs) (laughs) Very much uh, reminded me, like I want to call this divorce Mexicano style. This is about a taxidermist, Pablo Morales, and he has a wife who is a crippled, bitter old shrew who spends all of her day in bed, both whining and nagging for attention, as wives do, right, Bart? Not my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Bart's wife is very cool. So anyhow, Pablo, you know, he just wants to live his life. He's just the chillest guy. He's so happy. He just loves his job and he just wants to enjoy everything and and have a good time. But like his wife is so she's really what she really is beyond just being, you know, kind of an awful human being. She is disgusted by the fact that he's a taxidermist like she just hates the work that he does and so when they like sit down for dinner for example she's like oh how can you eat meat when you're surrounded by rotting meat all day and like ruins his dinner and then ruins her dinner and then has to like then she eats this disgusting what is this concoction of food that she it reminded me of um that thing they drink in the never ending story (laughs) where it's like orange juice and two eggs and like brandy brandy and like, yeah, there's like 500 bizarre, like, and then they just drink it raw. It's like terrifying. Um, But for some reason that's not disgusting for her, but anyhow, so Pablo, you know, like the wife is just like convinced that she can't do anything. She like, you know, she has this problem with her leg that isn't really a a big issue. And like they they come back to the fact that it's not even genetic. It's just like she was ill and then her leg got weird. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so anyhow, like everything she does is just like in defiance of her husband and nagging at her husband. In the meanwhile, in, in order to find any sort of joy, he saves up to buy himself a camera which she finds out about and then, of course, destroys out of spite. And so then from there, he finally cracks and says, you know what? Nobody's going to know. And I'm a taxidermist. And so he he poisons his wife. He murders her. He butchers her body up. And then one of the things he does beyond just like animal, like stuffing animals, is that he also prepares human skeletons for, you know, science class or whatever and for doctors so he takes all of her bones and he like puts them in different skeletons so nobody can ever find her body. He says she went on a vacation. And yeah, and so then the, the whole movie is, you know, I mean, that is the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> so the rest of the movie is is that, you know, he has to go to court and then prove himself innocent. And uh, there's many a twist and turn there. And yeah, this is really like, this is a laugh out loud, funny, dark humor kind of movie. It's not nearly as obnoxious as it sounds in some way. Like I, I, when it started, I wasn't sure where it was going to go, but it ended up being just very, it's just very funny and, and charming. What did you think it, about it's this? It's also kind of grisly in a way. Like it's not. Oh, super grisly. <laughs> I mean, you do see some of him taking bones out of animals, doing his job. And it's, uh, you know, it, it sort of delights in, in showing him, you know, sawing bones with his big bone saw. It's a horror film and it it's, creepy and and nauseating at times, but uh, it's also more than anything, just a satire. And the one big thing you left out is that this is such a satire on religion. 
Like Mrs. Morales right. is, you know, disgusted by Mr. Morales, by sex in general. I think, you know, part of it is that she thinks she's a cripple and can't thinks that she's just deformed and can't see herself as a as a sexual being. But she's and, and she's also turned off by what he does. She's frigid. He wants children really badly. And she just, you know, says we, we can't we'll be crippled like I am, which is not true. And she sort of turns to religion. She thinks that this makes her a very holy person. So she like plays this up with the priest who, you know, she's won over and she is a pillar of the community is like all the churchgoers think that she's a saint. And Mr. Morales is awful, just a, you know, such a sinner because of things that, that she's lies that she's made up about him. And it's a bit like the executioner, too, in that, you know, it's just that he does this dirty job, and so nobody wants to know him. Right. I mean, you get the Bunuel connection, most of all, from this whole satire of the Catholic Church. The priest is a terrible person, really just, you know, has it out for Mr. Morales for no reason other than he thinks that uh, that Mrs. Morales is such a saint. So... It's basically saying that religion doesn't make you a good person. That seems to be one of the major points of this film, which is basic, but it does it in an amusing way, a sharply satirical way. I like this film. I've been meaning to see it for a long time, and I think that's part of what convinced me that Mexican horror was where we should go with this episode so I could see this and a couple others that we'll talk about later on. They've just been on my list for a while. I was really... uh enamored with uh, Arturo de Cordova. Um, he uh, was really, just really charming, really funny, and great, Mr. Morales. He's a pretty big star. He was in one of the Mexican Bunuel films, I think L, maybe. He's got a huge filmography. I mean, that's the thing, looking up all of these directors and stars, that they did so many films that we just, you know, considering that this is our neighbor to the South, nobody has ever heard of like Mexican cinema is a complete mystery especially you know of this era is is a total mystery to people in the USA which seems wrong considering the you know the proximity and the and the number of spanish speaking people in this country but there it is yeah i mean these so these big stars will be talking about like they're unknowns because previous to this they were unknown to us but in mexico they're gigantic they're enormous stars yeah, it's it's definitely it's amusing, and I in a weird way I think actually Netflix seems to be making an effort to bringing a lot of Mexican film back. Like you'll, it's actually a movie later that we talk about that's getting remade and for Netflix coming up. So hmm. I'm hoping that we can get more of this because yeah, it's you know this movie alone is like the acting and the and the comedy is so accessible. This this could have been any language. <laughs> I uh, I wanted to sample another film by this director just to sort of figure out what he was all about, this uh, Rogelio A. Gonzalez. And there's another film that he made the same year, 1960, called The Ship of Monsters. You thought you were mad at me al- already for what I've chosen for this episode. When I tell you about this one and tell you that I, I, I didn't select it, you'll, you'll be furious. It's about these uh, women from Venus who come to Earth looking for uh, males to help them repopulate. And they've uh, you know, got a ship full of monsters and they stumble on uh, some singing cowboys. So it's a singing cowboy sci-fi horror monster movie. Are you fucking kidding me, Bart? No, Ship of Monsters. I watched a little bit of it just to get a taste and we'll have to somehow 
get that thing into another episode we do because it looks amazing. How dare you? (laughs) You know, the one thing I do know about Mexico is they're singing cowboys. And that's something that is near and dear to my heart. Tito Gazar, he's from Mexico. Anyhow. (sighs) I can't believe we watched these (laughs) shitty horror movies. Just kidding. They're all good. They're all great. What's next? Oh, the worst one. No, this is great. (laughs) All right. So if you have any sense of Mexican cinema in the 60s and 70s, you know that superhero wrestlers were a genre unto themselves. And nobody was bigger than El Santo, the uh, professional wrestler who never took his mask off, even in private. No one, even his best friends. He takes his mask off in like two seconds in this movie. Santo? No. Doesn't no, he? No, he, he never does. Right at the oh, end of yeah. his life, he took off his mask on some uh, talk show just, uh, you know, to say goodbye to all his fans. But uh, no, no one ever. Well, the character. No. You never see Santo's face. I guarantee that's his, that's his trademark. So Santo the Saint is... Uh, the greatest wrestler in Mexico, and he fights crime and supernatural monsters. So at the beginning of Santo versus the Vampire Women. with a crypt full of mummified vampire women who are in the middle of the ceremony to sort of revive one of them so they can find the successor to the vampire queen who they tried to revive a couple hundred years ago, but they failed to, so they're trying again because there's another. They're, they, <laughs> I mean... Honestly, it shouldn't be that hard to sum up what's happening in this movie because all of these Mexican horror movies from this era are roughly the same. These plots are all kind of interchangeable, but it often has to do with several generations of you know supernatural creatures trying to get revenge on the people who killed them or find a successor to the throne of their leader. And this is the latter. Yeah, so Tundra is is the first of these vampire women to awaken because she knows that Diana, who is somehow in the bloodline of the of Zarina, the queen of the vampires, has turned 21, so now she can become the new queen of the vampires. So she goes to kidnap her, but the her father knows that something's up and is trying to protect her, and he calls Santo to come help him because he can't explain what's going on to the police because they think he's crazy because of vampires and, and all of this stuff. So who can he turn to but Santo, who comes and and says, uh, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'll, I'll protect your daughter from uh, from these vampire women. And so in between these long matches we see of Santo in the ring with just, you know, wrestling regular humans and these sections go on and on and on and i can see that that's probably what really turned you off on this movie jenna (laughs) sorry you just woke me up i (laughs) fell asleep but yeah i mean people are coming to see these santo movies as i said already there are 24 of these things uh made in the 60s and uh, i think they're 50 something altogether were made so he was big business and it wasn't just santo like 
There are loads of wrestling women movies against supernatural creatures or other sorts of criminals, other sorts of bad guys, just wrestlers in general. People wanted to see masked wrestlers fighting bad guys in their movies in Mexico. So I chose this one just to get sort of a taste of what uh, Santo and this genre was all about. This is actually acclaimed as the best, quote unquote, the best of all the Santo movies. Uh, (laughs) It, uh, there was a concerted effort to make this one seem not quite as cheap as the ones that had come before it. You know, they spent a lot more money on it and, and you can tell, like, I actually think this movie is pretty atmospheric. Well, it starts with about 15 hours of just creaking. (laughs) just various things creaking so that the atmosphere has been established i like that you see these coffins open and these women with this cracking pancake makeup coming out of these coffins and it's it's a little creepy i mean it's not going to scare anybody in 2022 but i could see people at the time thinking it was pretty upsetting i could you know i mean i like these like creepy ladies you know the vampire women and there's the queen of radiant beauty who's there to seduce all the men and she kind of looks like priscilla presley (laughs) (laughs) and then there's like later on they're 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 all drinking the blood and they're like turning back into younger and more beautiful looking versions of themselves and there's one who turns into like oh no it's like the queen like she drinks the blood and then she gets even hotter than she was before (laughs) like she turns into like she, you know what she looked like? Elizabeth Taylor mixed with like Kim Kardashian or something. <laughs> she was like this really like sex pot looking lady. And you're like, all right, I guess that this is probably why it's people love it because there, there are some hotties in it. Yeah, that's Lorena Velasquez, who I guess she was a big TV star more than anything. And, you know, just did so much, did telenovelas and, and things. But when she comes out of her mummified state, she's uh, she's a knockout. All right. Yeah. But like you, but then she doesn't do anything. Like you never hear from her. This I really had a hard time watching this, and it sucks because honestly, when you said Mexican wrestling horror movie, I was like all in, sold. <laughs> Except here's the thing, and and here's what I didn't bet on: the fact that I hate wrestling. <laughs> I actually like. I I do not understand. I've never. And it might be honestly like a junior high school thing because on my junior high school bus all the boys were obsessed with wrestling like the people's eyebrow and stone cold steve austin and all this shit from like that is now imprinted in my brain forever and i never ever watched it and all of these boys were obnoxious and i just can't (laughs) i can't remove the two things even though there's like a staginess and like a performance aspect to wrestling that i understand exists but I can, I just cannot, I can't handle it. It's hard to know what to pay attention to when the movie just stops for 10 minutes to show you wrestling, a wrestling match. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I tried to, I tried to pay attention to, to Santos various moves like, Oh, is he going to do this one to some of the vampire women or their henchmen who are these, you know, muscle bound, obviously played by wrestlers themselves. I think, I mean, I think the whole cast is wrestlers at least the vampires and and Santo. But other than like this, the tedium of these wrestling matches, which is, you know, people getting what they paid for when they went to see Santo versus the vampire women. That's what people are coming for. Me, that's, I wanted to, to get back to the story. And as far as that goes, this plot holds together so much better than a lot of these 
cheapo horror films that I watched from this era. It does have high production values. It does like the plot kind of makes sense. Like it never drops the reality of, of what it's trying to do. Like there are moments where when Diana's father is, he has to you know save the day just in time by translating these ancient you know, writings or something. And he's just, Oh, I finally figured it out just when he needs. To. So there's like a lot of ridiculousness like that, where it's, you know, just silly monster movie stuff, but it actually, you know, I was kind of invested in, in what, uh, in how Santa was going to save the day and, uh, how he was going to keep Diana who, who gets kidnapped several times, you know, once from a nightclub, once from her own, you know, 21st, birthday party and once you know and and santo just uh you know for a guy with no superpowers he really knows how to take down these vampires i thought it was a lot of fun the thing that was really killing me was just the dialogue that was like little does she suspect that tonight's going to be extremely tragic for her and it was like dude that's your daughter you're talking <laughs> <laughs> it's like someone announcing wrestling but announcing the plot. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what, the, that's what the people come for. It is. I barely remember this film. It was one of those, like the second it was over, I was, I, I I'm looking at my notes for it and I'm amazed. I even managed to put down as much. I put bats on a string are amazing. That's one of my notes. Um, guy is determined not to say vampire that's a pet peeve when you have a movie that's about vampire like twilight and they're like huh he seems to suck blood and he can't be in the sunlight hmm and let me google that and like it comes up with like vampire and they're like what (laughs) (laughs) nobody's gonna believe it there's no such thing as vampires I mean, I would at least Google, like, is this a vampire? Like, I would know the word. You know what I mean? It's like they just, it's some sort of bat blood sucking. hmm, I don't know. I don't know what. But thankfully, there are these strong men in wrestling masks who drive around town in these sporty little convertibles and can be there when you need to be saved from monsters. This, This came out in 1962, directed by Alfonso Corona Blake, who also did, uh, movie called the world of the vampires which is one of the more well-known films from this time from the year before 1961 and uh this was like the something like the sixth santo movie and a big step up from the ones that came before it i can't say that i want to check out uh, all the rest of his films but uh, i'm glad i now know what santo is all about i mean i can't wait to watch 25 of these personally but next up should have been because here's the thing Bart like I'm I'm like watching these movies and then I'm texting Bart and I'm saying what what is hat like why are, <laughs> what is with the quality of these films like what is the thread I'm trying to follow and he goes oh these are the good ones you don't want to watch the bad ones and then the bad ones turn out to be amazing so I spite watched one of the movies that Bart told me is totally specifically do not watch because it was awful and it turns out it was the best movie I saw. And we can't even talk about it. But I think you, the listener, should go ahead and, and watch The Brainiac from 1962. 
directed by Santiago Eduardo Urueta. And this movie, I'm, I'm not going to even spoil this movie. It opens with a dude who's on trial for being too goddamn rad for his entire century. He's a necromancer. He is worshiping the devil. He is seducing the maidens. This dude is just rocking it. And uh, of course, they burn him at the stake. And so he says, I'm going to come back in 300 years. I'm going to kill you guys and get my revenge. And he comes back on a motherfucking comet in the year 1962 <laughs> in Mexico. And man of his word, he goes out and kills all these bitches, his relatives. And it is the greatest film I've ever seen. He walks around in this like mask that looks like a rubber Satan mask that you would get at the like 99 cent store, except like that's actually meant to be his head. And it like pulsates because like the guy like tenses his jaw and the mask is probably too small for him. And they yeah, were like breathing inside that rubber and the cheeks on the mask kind of yeah pulsate in and out. They were like, you know, leave it. It looks kind of creepy. And this was just the greatest film I've seen in my entire life. And but oops. Oh, well, we can't talk about it because Bart says it's not worthy of our Mexican horror movies. So, you know what? If I was able to sit down and watch this with you, I would have loved it. But. I have trouble watching so bad it's good movies all by myself. This was I'm just good. This was just good. There was no bad. This was a great it film. Was, it was snappy. It, was, it w had a really cool guy. It was utterly incompetent. It was so poorly made. <laughs> but fun for that reason. I mean, it would be a fantastic Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode. I also didn't want to get stuck in these junkier slapdash early 60s movies. I wanted to move on to the, you know, the classier stuff. So. Right. So we go to La Loba. But before we talk about that, I just want to mention The Witch's Mirror, which is another well-known, as well-known as these Mexican horror films can be. The Witch's Mirror always comes up on oh, best Mexican horror films of the 60s list. And uh, it's by the same director, same year, Santiago Eduardo Urueta. It's much better made than the Brainiac. It uses the same sets, a totally different set of actors, but the same like sort of arched castle set is used for the witch's mirror. And it's just, it's basically just Rebecca meets eyes without a face. Like that's. Which sounds amazing. You've seen the entire movie. All I have to do is say that. And you've seen the whole thing. And it's, you know, for people who like gothic atmosphere, sort of hammerish, uh, you know, who cares what the story oh, me? is? Me? Me? People like me? People like you who don't care if any of it makes any sense at all, if uh, the director has any kind of brains in his head. Wow. Then it's fine. But uh, I asked you know, to watch La Loba instead. so we could move move ahead in the 60s a little bit and here we are yet again in a movie that i think actually is quite a bit like a hammer film but not nearly as good as brainiac but um anyhow it is about a she-wolf la loba directed by rafael belladon i don't know what is this one about this one i, I found a lot of these first movies that you picked to be sort of hard to follow 
in that they are so simple and yet they're so talky about what's going on that it like they throw so many bizarre details at you that really have absolutely nothing to do with anything and it gets kind of like rough to like remember what's actually happening and the subtitles are terrible that's also a problem they were they were not good subtitles but that i mean I have a weird, like Spanish is like one of these languages that because I'm in New York and I'm exposed to Spanish all the time, I can kind of like understand what's being said, maybe also from the Italian studying. I can't speak it at all. Like, (laughs) terrible. But like, I can sort of pick up when the subtitles were terrible, you could kind of make out what was what they were saying. But even then, it's just, there's so much talk about like metaplasm in this movie. <laughs> Anyhow, this is about a she-wolf, right? So it, it opens with this really great, it has a great opening this movie, which is this really long, blonde-haired, furry lady just pouncing on people and ripping their throats out without hesitation. It rocks. It owns. Like, I'm just super, in, super into it. Um, and so there's all these people, you know, start dying and they have to figure out who killed them. So the characters are Clarissa, who is the she-wolf, and she doesn't really know, right? I think it's one of these things you just kind of like wake up and like, you're like, what did I do last night? And you look under your nails and you're like, oh shit. She must know because she sought out her fiance who That's right. is supposed to cure her of Her this. fiance who studies lycanthropy, the science of werewolves. And he's like, science denies this, but I have very powerful reasons to believe it. It is beyond pathological. It is a true mystery, is what he says. And uh, yeah, they're engaged. Her father, who, like, she lives in this really grand estate. It's so grand that I, I had a really hard time keeping track of the layout of this house. Is extremely mm-hmm. confusing, <laughs> which I think is due to the filmmaking. There's two really big rooms, and one of them is like, a foyer and one of them is a foyer slash doctor's science lab where they have like giant microscopes that they look at the blood of you know the killer under the microscope trying to figure out from the metaplasm you know who who killed what and, and all of that and then you know she has all these little sisters and a mother Basically, it's it's about her father not understanding what's happening. And then suddenly there's another werewolf. And it turns out her fiance is also a werewolf. She's a werewolf. And she was going to him to try and like solve the werewolfism. It's a werewolves in love movie. How great is that? <laughs> <laughs> I love that this movie ends with like a Twilight Zone voiceover. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it down. I wrote, well, the subtitles I wrote down that said, after death comes the region without dimensions where time and space are endless. <laughs> Reaching it is the most important. This is where our love will last forever. And I was like, wow, that's true love. Nothing that anybody does in this movie makes any sense. I mean, it's all just kind of set up for these attack scenes. There's this deaf mute little girl who's the daughter of the maid and she will leave the house, go out the window in the middle of the night just to go to the graveyard where she's got a little doll stored and she'll play with the the doll. Oh, it's like a tin drummer, right? Like, yeah, she just sits there and stares at this tin drummer, which you have to, of course, stare at for five minutes. And she's so happy about it. But meanwhile, behind her, and she has no idea because she's deaf, 
there's this uh, werewolf hunter and his werewolf hunting dog chasing after this werewolf and we're we're afraid for this little girl's life and she's completely oblivious to what's going on behind her and and so she only exists really for us to be terrified that harm is going to come to her nothing she does makes any sense really as if we care as if we are not like totally floored by the werewolf hunter and his werewolf hunting dog <laughs> Which, yes, is definitely the best part of this entire film because it comes out of absolutely nowhere and he kind of doesn't do anything. And he's played by Noe Murayama. And you're just like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and then they call it, they're like, the dog is a Lycar. He kills werewolves. And you're like, hell yeah. <laughs> Not related to an Ipcar, by the way. We don't kill werewolves, we love them. <laughs> I thought this movie was. More fun than a lot of these junky ones. It wasn't more fun than Brainiac. It, it, here's the thing. It has these really fun parts. I mean, like, I love this female werewolf, I think, is something you really don't see that often. Maybe it's because I don't watch enough horror movies. I Of the horror movies that I've seen about werewolves, I, I have not seen very many a female werewolf. So I was into that aspect. And I really love her long, long hair <laughs> as a werewolf. Like, that just really, it just, it was perfect it was like the, the a really good mix of it and you don't ever really see her so it works so all you really see is this mess of hair and blood all the time so you know it was it was effective in that way like i thought it was um atmospheric you know it has that kind of like gothic thing like you were saying and the werewolf hunter has such a great entrance he you know he's sort of like gets picked up at the local jail right they're like who is this guy and he's like look guys i'm, I'm on a mission i got stuff to do the problem is it's the sort of thing that makes me realize why modern action movies are so popular when they really like lay out the fights and really make a point to like have a beginning, middle and end of what's happening on the screen. Because for something like this, all you get is just suddenly when people are fighting, it's so random and like one guy gets thrown and then another guy gets thrown and then another guy gets thrown. Like there's nothing happening. It's just the same wild flailing on screen like you know nothing it's like until the end until like the one thing that everyone's waiting for to happen happens like say the little girl gets attacked or, or threatened or whatever you know finally something happens or like there's a scene where one woman the sister or the mother steps in a werewolf trap that was left oh, out yeah. by him and she gets her like you know leg caught in a bear trap basically and you know then the of course the the wolf comes to kill her or another sister or mother i literally don't remember these characters i'm sorry she gets locked in the freezer where there's a dead body and the dead body ends up being another werewolf who kills her and oh yeah because the father is freezing the werewolves the victims so they don't turn into werewolves all right yeah because he's studying cellular regeneration but he doesn't want that to happen i don't know the, the science of this is amazing <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it isn't bad. It's just so much that gets thrown at you. And maybe honestly, if I rewatch this, knowing what to expect, I would probably, I think I would enjoy it a bit better. I enjoyed it as is. I thought it was fun. Well, what I liked about this one was it wasn't just the same like variation on, you know, these monsters getting revenge on the next generation of the people who destroyed them the first time around sort of story. And the movie that I wanted to watch, it was originally on the list was The Curse of the Crying Woman. Because I was like, oh, Mexican horror, we've got to see a, a La Llorona movie. You know, the, the famous ghost woman, weeping woman who uh, the tale goes like she had two children and she drowned them because she was so upset because her 
husband was fooling around on her, but then she feels bad about it and drowns herself, but, you know, stuck haunting the, the seaside for eternity. It's like the Mexican monster that, that you want to see. And, and this movie, The Curse of the Crying Woman, had nothing to do with that legend. It was just yet another one of these, like, one generation getting uh, revenge on the, on the previous generation because they killed her, their predecessor sort of thing. And it had nothing to do with that whole horror fable. And so I was disappointed and said, no, we're going to watch Raphael Baladon's La Loba instead, because uh, that's at least a little bit different. But now there's now that we've gotten like halfway through the 60s there, I did notice that there's a real kind of change in the sorts of horror movies that were coming out. I mean, Santo was still battling Aztec mummies and uh, and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, the popular favorites of of Mexican horror seem to be less these uh, Hollywood inspired old timey monster movie sort of things and, and seem to have more of a like pensive European sort of atmosphere about them. I mean, they're not necessarily intellectual movies at all, but at least they're a bit more thoughtful and they appeal to me more as, you know, because I I find a lot of horror movies just kind of dumb, frankly, they don't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I, I want to be able to follow characters and see what their motivations are and understand why they're doing what they're doing. And for the most part, horror doesn't satisfy that part of my movie fandom at all. See, my problem is I'm just a wuss. <laughs> <laughs> the next three movies that we watched gave me enough of a, a creepy feeling that I just had to like distract myself to not like dwell on it because that's what happens to me. It can be the dumbest horror movie on the planet, but it'll have one jump scare and it'll make me physically jump off the couch. <laughs> In movie theaters, too, I, I'm not somebody that you want to bring to the theater because I will flinch constantly. <laughs> and and it sucks because, like, objectively, I know I'm not afraid of it. Like, I know where I am, but I just can't handle it. So that's my big issue. That's why I never want to watch any of these movies. Do you, do you get scared easily? I think when I was a kid, I got really scared by horror movies and just wanted to have nothing to do with them because I don't like the feeling of being scared. Like I just want to leave. I want the movie to be over. Right. So I I think I kind of intentionally became immune to that so that it takes a lot for a movie to be successfully scary to me now. And that's because I've sort of turned off that part of my brain because I don't want to be so creeped out that I'm not enjoying myself at all. What's what kind of movie scares you? Just, 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 I'm sorry, this is a derail, but like, I'm personally, supernatural movies scare the shit out of me. I can watch so many, like, graphic horror movies that are about serial killers or whatever the hell. Like, I can watch things that are about murder, and I'm like, it, you know, it's it's creepy, but it doesn't, like, give me nightmares the way that something about a ghost <laughs> or an alien will, even though I I don't believe in ghosts. Aliens, another question, but I, I don't <laughs> I don't actively think aliens are really coming after me. I would love that, actually. What kind of movie scares you? Anything that creates a real sense of dread, like where I'm thinking, oh, something really horrible is going to happen now. Like anything that successfully makes me feel that way, that's what scares me. So it isn't a particular genre or particular type of monster or anything like that. It's just sort of somebody who really knows how to manipulate the audience into feeling dread. It's a rare movie that makes me feel that way anymore. But, uh, you know, there have been a few. I, I think 
the conjuring you know as far as mainstream recent horror movies go like that one actually kind of scared me a bit but i also don't watch that many of them so it's a combination of turning myself off and just not watching them fair but these next three movies there's nothing scary at all about the first three movies we watched they're just your sort of typical monster movies and who doesn't love monsters so you know they're fun for that reason but there's nothing scary about them these next three are actually there is that sense of creeping dread in all of them and a couple of them aren't even like what you would traditionally think of as a horror movie they are dramas with horror aspects to them case in point pedro paramo from 1967 directed by Carlos Velo is based on one of the most well-known, beloved Mexican novels. Um, you know, it's Gabriel Garcia Marquez's favorite book. I've never read Pedro Paramo, but watching this movie made me want to read it. I think it's a pretty successful movie from what I understand. Uh, if you've read the book, it totally simplifies everything. It straightens out the chronology and uh, and fans of the book don't love the movie but i think on its own the, the movie is pretty good it stars our favorite guy john gavin who's a block of wood and in, in several movies we've watched already uh psycho well we haven't watched psycho but uh, he was in one of the oss 117 movies one of the bad ones he's actually i think his mother was mexican so he can speak spanish and he's pretty good in this movie he plays the title character who we don't meet immediately. It starts with his son, Juan. Juan's mother is dying, and, uh, and she says to Juan, go and meet your father. He'll be glad to have met you. And uh, his name is Pedro Paramo, and he lives in uh, Comala. So go to Comala and find him, and he'll take you in. This is my dying wish, is, is for you to meet your father. Well, so uh, Juan goes to Komala, and it's an abandoned town. It's a literal ghost town because uh, he he doesn't realize it at first, but everyone that he meets when he comes into this town has been dead for some time, but he's talking to them and uh, hearing stories about his father, and they keep saying, oh yeah, he lives, everything around here belongs to your father. You know, walk in any direction and you're on Pedro's land. And each of these ghosts that he meets in this town, he eventually realizes that, oh, something's going on here. I heard a scream, and then uh, you know, I turned around, and I see this woman I was just talking to is hanging from the ceiling. It has just hung herself. And he begins to understand that uh, it's a ghost town, and his father is the person who's responsible for destroying this town and all of these people's lives. And he hears the story of how his father inherited land from his father who's in a lot of debt and then pedro goes about resolving all of these debts starting out by marrying juan's mother who's the daughter of the richest man in town the person that pedro paramo owes the most money to and so resolves the debt that way and he just sort of builds up his empire you know he's totally immoral he sleeps around constantly he on his wedding night 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> he spends the whole evening with this young woman who's at the wedding celebration, and uh, his wife is just up in bed waiting for him. Yeah, he's he's a total sleazeball, you know, sleeping around and also just exploiting people so that he can control everything in town. It turns out that um, he's a sleazeball because uh, the the one woman that he ever loved, Susanna, he can't have. She turned him down long ago, and. And later on in the movie, he finally, um, you know, gets gets her to come back to town. And uh, but she's become insane at that point because the man that she loves, Antonio, has been murdered, and her father has been sleeping with her. There's like some really disturbing incest going on in there. And uh, this movie, like, there's there's no way to get all of the plot points in one viewing. There's just so much going on. But it's basically just about Pedro Paramo and the rise and fall of Juan's father and how with him died this town. It's spooky and it's also, it's got a lot of, you know, that telenovela type you know, melodrama in there where people are doing horrible things to other people and there's a lot of who's sleeping with who and, and that sort of thing. The Pedro's illegitimate son, Miguel, is even worse than he is, like rapes all sorts of women and kills the brother of the town priest just for no reason at all, just because he says, I can do whatever I want, and and then rapes the daughter of the guy he just killed, and she's one of the ghosts that Juan meets later. Yeah, it's definitely, it's this um, intertwining of different storylines that all kind of, they cross at one point, but they don't necessarily meet again kind of thing which i guess you could say is is also a telenovela kind of thing and that there's all these parallel storylines happening and they're all from different timelines and this sort of like continual flashback and then this continual digression uh this really reminded me quite a bit even though it i would say that at the same time i would say it has nothing to do with it but it reminded me quite a bit of the saragossa manuscript mm-hmm because it was, you know, very much about this looking back and, and meditating. I mean, I thought this was really, this was a really great movie. I didn't love the movie, but I love the story. Like, I thought it was well told, like, for, for considering, you can tell that this is some big, thick, and confusing book. Apparently, it's a short story, <laughs> but, uh, or short novel or something. But it's not, it's not uh, like Saragossa Manuscript in the sense that I think that's like some 600, 800 pages. But, um... But, you know, it is, it, it's complex and it all comes together to kind of tell you this really, really depressing story just about, uh, you know, about like unrequited love in all of its forms, you know, like from either from father to son or husband to wife or father to daughter and mistress to, you know, it's like everything is, everything's crumbling. And there's a really strong theme about the like indelible legacy of, of selfishness which I found intensely interesting and also in haunting. I mean, like this is, it's like a really great, I wouldn't call this a horror movie, quite frankly, Bart. This was the point where I texted you and was like, why are we watching this? But it's a good topic for a horror movie, <laughs> whether or not this was a horror movie, but you know, this idea about, you know, uh, th this abuse of power and the importance of nurturing and not taking responsibility for something other than yourself. You know, this, this ripple effect of selfish acts that, and how that, how that ripples across entire community or an entire generations of your family. And like, just the, just thinking about that as it, you know, sort of destroys multiple generations and multiple people in multiple 
timelines was just like a really just depressing thing to to sort of meditate on. Well, and it makes the whole metaphor of ghosts really literal. I mean, there are ghosts that appear in this, but they're very much representing, you know, the whole idea of of ghosts in in literature and in fiction is, and that's the, you know, this mistakes from the past having repercussions on the present. And that's what this whole movie is about. It's about people who've been destroyed by Pedro Paramo, uh, you know, entire town that's been destroyed by him. And it's, you know, how everything is sort of, how the present is is affected by the the actions of this this one immoral powerful person. So I thought, you know, even if a lot of the you know there's not typical horror content in it, it gets that ghost metaphor just right and it, it is it's spooky, it's creepy and and depressing and and haunting for for that reason. Yeah. That's a that's, I mean it's a good point. This this movie, I, I wonder, you know, I, I'm trying to pinpoint what didn't work about this movie for me, which is something, again, like, I like this movie. I, I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was, a, you know, above average. But I'm trying to think of, like, what wasn't working. And I, and I wonder if maybe it was just the fact that it sets up a handful of really creepy things that it then backs away from, which, you know, for 67, it was kind of, it's a little, I think it's a bit conservative for 67, but it, I don't know for Mexican movies, <laughs> but you know, like there's that scene with uh, all the stuff with Susanna is really just horrible because, you know, she's very young teenager whose father decides I'm lonely and then looks at her and realizes, Oh, you're a woman. And so starts this, uh, you know, incestual affair with her, which is one sided obviously. And, um, you know, there's this creepy scene where he like puts her down in this well telling her to go do some task. And then he com comes down there himself and then, you know, forces himself on her. It's really creepy, but in like every scene after, you know, because they, ne they can never s really tell you what's happening. You know, it's very obvious, but they, they have to back away from it. There's a degree of, I don't like, it kind of takes away from the horrors of it because the, the next scenes are just this sort of typical sixties, even fifties, I would say kind of languishing oh, woe is me kind of stuff that just doesn't match the terror that they're implying. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I thought a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were trying to pack so many storylines into a two-hour film. Yeah, maybe that's and, it. And I think, I mean, from my impression of the book, that's sort of how it is. You get these disjointed scenes that just sort of give you impressions of what's happening. But to see it acted out on the screen in, in a very literal sort of way, it feels like not quite developed enough. You definitely get the whole scope of Pedro Paramo and what he's done and what his issues are and why this movie is named after him. But yeah, all the various little storylines going on around him, you know, it, it tackles little aspects of things, but never, you never get a full picture. And I think that, that maybe that works in the book a little better than it works in a two hour movie. Yeah, it's a it's a lot. And and it's not a short well, it could have been a longer like this could have been a three hour film. Apparently so this is the one that's getting remade by Netflix. Oh really? So I will be curious to to see that. I think there's been other adaptations of this because it's a sort of beloved Mexican work, but uh the book is. But I'll be curious, you know, this was a great introduction to it for me. I mean, like not knowing anything about it. I didn't even know it existed. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'd heard the name but knew nothing about it. But 
it's worth a watch if you can find it. It's not easy to find. There's definitely something that's haunting about these movies where when they're just about like a lack of love, like the sort of the void left by a lack of love is always like the more cutting and depressing of horror films. And it's interesting because I there's so much that avoids the topic of love. I've been thinking about this a lot with I, this is really off topic, so we don't, I'm not going to get into it, but I've been thinking a lot about this with, when it comes to like superhero films and like they've cut a lot of the love stories out of these things. And you know, those end up being the stuff that really is the most powerful in, in all senses. So I appreciated that about this. Yeah. I mean, you don't even realize for, you know, well over half the film that this really is just an unrequited love story between Pedro and Susana it sort of springs that on you at a at kind of a, a, a later moment. And it's got a, a lot of impact when you finally realize, oh, that's what this is all about. So while Pedro Paramo is not, uh, you know, what you would typically think of as a horror film, it is kind of in this tradition of sort of creepy, dark fables in Mexican cinema, like uh, Macario, which is from 1960, which is one of the most beloved Mexican films of the 60s. And why didn't we watch it? <laughs> because I've seen that I saw that one a while ago and my memory of it is it's all very sunlit and you know I think you go inside death's cave at one point and that's kind of creepy and candlelit but it's um it seems pretty far removed from a horror film even though it does deal with you know god and satan and this guy who makes a deal with death and and all that sort of thing it has similar themes to Pedro Paramo in the next movie we're going to talk about but uh, it's it's even less of a horror film than I think Pedro is. Well, the next film uh, I thought was really haunting. The Scapular. This is directed by Servando Gonzalez. Bart, you were raised Catholic, right? What's a scapular? I've never even heard of this word. It's something that goes around your neck. Like the thing, the scapular that they're referring to in this movie that you see over and over again, I've never seen anything like that before. Like I think the sort of... It's like a cloth amulet, right? The shawl type things that the priests will wear in mass, those are scapulars. So like, but this sort of necklace thing with a jewel on it that there, I, I had never seen anything like that before. I like looked it up, like I Googled it and it seems, I mean, I guess they're the two of those things are sort of related and that they're both are like a devotion item, question mark. My thing here, and, and this is my question, all Catholics write in. <laughs> <laughs> I don't the thing that I don't know before I get into this movie I don't know what a scapular like it, it seems that it is like some sort of devotion to one specific saint no I don't know oh, that's don't my know. question if, you, if it, you looked it up you probably know more about it I, than but I it do. doesn't didn't tell me anything because when you look up catholic things all you get is more catholic things <laughs> they're like oh it's like this other with the uh, blah blah and you're like what the heck's the blah blah and you google that and like it's like a scapular and you're like god damn it 
so it, it, it I, the thing I don't know is that if this has some sort of like, if it's meant to be something that like watches over you and protects you or something like, I don't know if that's actually what this is about. I got the sense that it really wasn't, that it's just this sort of like, it's something that you give to someone and you bless it the first time you give it to somebody and then that's it. Like, it's not like some, it's not like a holy item or anything. It's just like a, like it seemed to me to be semi akin to a rosary, but again, I'm not Catholic and I don't even know what rosaries do. <laughs> so I, it seems like the point of the scapular, at least in this movie is that it's it all, it's him. power is, well, it's power is completely dependent on how much you believe that it has power. So it's all faith based. So if you believe that this scapular is protecting you, it's going to like, that seems to be the point of it. Oh, I, I did not get that at, at all <laughs> because I actually it, think it was the opposite. It seemed like it protected you whether you wanted it or not. That is true. Yeah. So here's, but there's also a line of dialogue to that effect in there somewhere. So here's the thing. Anyway, here's this movie. The plot of this. I, I mean, I loved, I love this movie. It's basically that, yes, you have a woman. Oh my gosh. This movie opens in first person camera. Great opening. It well, it opens with the firing squad, right? And then it's the priest is being guided to the dying woman by some first person camera action, and you don't know if it's God or or who this like first person camera stuff is, but it is pretty awesome. And it's all cinematography by uh, Gabriel Figueroa, which is amazing, amazing cinematography in this. Even though he did the last one too, but this one he really steps it up. So yeah, so you get this story about this dying woman who had this scapular that gave it to her son for this protection. And so you kind of, you're basically following the story of whoever gets this item. So the son has it and then he, so he's a deserter and then he gets caught blowing up a train and he gets up to sent to the firing squad and right at the last moment, you know, he has this scapular in his neck and right at the last moment he gets saved because they want to question him. Then he's standing there with all of these other soldiers. And one of them says, look, if you go run, you know, they want to torture you and I don't want to be part of that. So I'm giving you one chance. You go run. It's really misty out. Go run and get to that tree, jump over the wall and, and I'll try and stall everyone. And then we're going to come after you. So keep running. He ends up getting shot several times in the back. And then when they stand around him to see if he's check, if he's really dead, he's actually still breathing. So the officer like shoots him in the head and he's still alive until basically someone else threatens mutiny if he keeps shooting him because they think it's too cruel. And so they walk away and they leave him. And then until somebody comes by, some, some ruffian comes by and another deserter and takes the scapular off of his neck. And so we're sort of, you know, you keep following this thing as it's being taken and given or sold and bought. And well, and the moment that the scapular is removed from his neck, he that's dies. when he dies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there's this, you know, we, it, it's interesting. We kind of follow this, these different stories. And eventually it, it ends on this story about this man who, you know, he, he's in love with a woman who's, you know, above his <laughs> rank out of he, he's poor and and he lives with his like what is it his like mute uncle and his deaf uncle and so he buys a scapular from this deserter and he rides he gets a note like her father doesn't want them to get married and she's of course you know does have a crush on him or is in love with him and you know they're trying to figure it out so he she is forced by her father to write a letter to him and say come to my house so that the father can essentially set him up and then kill him <laughs> or duel him or something when he gets there but um, instead, he 
as he's riding in, a dead man appears. There's three hanged men, actually, and it's one of it's the guy that sold him the scapular, and and he cuts the guy down, and he realizes he's still alive, and he says, "Give me your hat and your poncho. I'm cold," you know, and it's this really creepy thing, and I don't want to I don't want to spoil this movie. Definitely don't. I mean, the the final resolution to this film is incredible, and I don't spoil it at all. But I, I don't think you're spoiling anything. Yeah. So part of what is incredible about this movie, uh, besides the fact that it's genuinely like kind of chilling, <laughs> I mean, it's shot so beautifully. There's so many really amazing, really like striking and scary shots. Like the angle in which we see him get shot in the head when he's that, that first deserter. I'll put that on our website because it's so cool. It's such an, an awesome shot because it's basically like from beneath the ground looking up you have like his face essentially laying on the camera but not you know like you can see his face so it's not directly on the camera you know on like glass and then you see these people standing above him looking down kind of like angle it's just just as perfect with the trees in the sky it's such a cool and terrifying angle you know you're looking down the barrel of the gun even when the guy's, you know, on the ground, just totally like unable to move or function because he's been shot so many times and yet he won't die, which is in itself horrifying. You know, there's so much stuff like that in this, this sort of like amoral ambiguity that plays out. And yeah, it makes you question what kind of faith and God really is comes with this thing because it doesn't really seem to be, <laughs> a, you know, good luck. It It, it is some kind of luck it is some kind of protection but uh you know it's it's incredibly ambiguous this is a great film and it's not particularly well known i didn't have it on my initial list of things to watch for this episode but i was so disappointed by the shoddiness and the repetitiveness of the earlier films that i was watching that i had on my list that i had to sort of scrounge around for some other things that, that got some good reviews and and people don't really know about this thing but it's easily the best thing that we watched for this episode. More people need to see this thing. It's such a creepy little fable that has a great ending, like a really haunting, memorable ending. This is the sort of thing that I was hoping to find. You know, whenever we do an episode like this where we delve into something we don't know much about and just sort of explore around and see what's out there, I'm always hoping to find something like this movie. And I was really glad that there was something this good, this memorable. So, Jenna, this is why we couldn't spend too much time on stuff like the Brainiac, because because uh, we had to get to, we have to get to the good stuff. People don't want to hear us complaining about terrible movies. I could have spent an hour talking about the Brainiac. <laughs> don't even. Well, the other thing that was super amazing about this was. It has a brief moment where it dips into just listening to a love song and an animated fantasy sequence, which is perfect. It's a perfect animated fantasy sequence. I actually love it. It's like some straight up Disney shit, though. Yeah, I mean, it's simple, like line drawing animation. You know, it's black and white film, so it's just white on black. And and the song that the, the sort of sentimental song that goes with it it's it's great and it's just so out of nowhere you don't see it coming but it fits perfectly into this movie and it fits perfectly into what it's trying to do like i just love i love when movies will just like 
horror film be damned it doesn't really i mean there's some creepy stuff like it turns into a full-on horror movie by the end of this for sure but like it it i just love that it takes this moment to be like what does it feel like when you're longing (laughs) (laughs) you know and it it really is this like wonderful like this like animated disney-ass bird that goes flying around the screen and you know his face which is still in in you know the still the camera it's still a live thing of his face and then this sort of ornate picture frame. So it makes it look like his face in cameo. And then her face shows up in, in drawn cameo. And then there's like, you know, there's like flowers. It's, it's so good. It's so perfect. And it's funny, but it's like, it's like sweet and, and honest. And I just, I loved it. I, it was so great. It, and it just sold the whole romance. I was like, I don't need to know anything else. Like you guys, you two love birds. So like this needs to happen. Yeah. And then the fact that there could be this, it's a really good love story in the middle of this creepy movie about this devotional item that may or may not save your life if you're wearing it. It's such a risky choice to to put that in there, but it's perfect. It really works. I also loved his striped pants. Yeah, <laughs> his carnival pants. They were so good. Why don't men wear pants like that anymore? And like a good old mm. poncho, like a Clint Eastwood poncho and like striped pants. I'm talking thick stripes, not like pinstripes. It was very 68. The last movie we're talking about is uh, The Book of Stone from 1969, directed by Carlos Enrique Taboada. He's actually one of the few Mexican horror directors of this period that is uh, kind of getting a bit of renewed attention these days. This film, The Book of Stone, and uh, the probably more famous Even the Wind is Afraid from the previous year, 1968, have both been remade at least once recently. And people seem to have gone back and found these. And these two movies seem to be what most people talk about these days when they're talking about Mexican horror from the 60s. I watched them both, and um, they're both good. I think even The Wind is Afraid, which is about these uh, schoolgirls who uh, one of them is being contacted by a ghost um, because something bad happened with a headmaster there who's this sort of horrible woman who's uh, you know cruel to these schoolgirls. And it's fun to watch these schoolgirls you know, interact with each other. But I didn't find it that creepy. I thought uh, the Book of Stone from the year after, which is, you know, they're, they're always, they're talked about in the same breath. People always mention them both at the same time. I thought that one was actually a little scarier. So I decided that was the one we should talk about. And it is about um, actually the, the cruel head mistress from, uh, from even the wind is afraid plays Julia in this one, who is a, a very nice governess uh, who, who comes to teach the daughter of this uh, wealthy guy. The, the little girl's name is Sylvia, and she had uh, meningitis when she was younger, and she's missed out on school for a while. She's she's not sick anymore, but she still has this, these sort of you know, mental problems. She may be, her father is worried that she may be a little bit crazy, a little bit mentally ill, and uh, doesn't want to scare off Julia because of this, but it's, you know, 
she was recommended because she's apparently really good in these sorts of situations with sort of troubled children and getting them to like her and uh, educating them. So yeah, Julia is happy to take on this challenge and sort of has a rough start with Sylvia, but eventually wins Sylvia over and finds out a little bit about her and why people think that she's a little bit crazy. And it turns out that Sylvia has an invisible friend named Ugo, who, you know, she talks about as if he's there and her father and uh, her stepmother. Uh, she hates her stepmother for no particular reason because she's nice enough, but she's just... She's kind of a bitch. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, later on. I mean, it takes, yeah, it takes evil children laughter to get her there, but... But yeah, her father and, and Mariana, her stepmother, are uh, saying, don't talk about Ugo. He doesn't exist. There's this, And um, Julia finds out that there's a statue of this little boy by this pond in the backyard, and that's Ugo. Can I just say that it's really glorious at the beginning of this movie where they're like, our child is mentally ill. And she's like, why do you think that? And they're like, she speaks to an imaginary friend. And like... <laughs> The, the governess is like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is a slow burn movie for sure. Like it takes a while to realize what's going on here. It actually starts out a lot like Turn of the Screw or, yeah. or The Innocence. Like Julia's hair is actually a lot like Deborah Carr's in The Innocence. It goes to a very different place, but there are a lot of, lot of things that are reminiscent of, of Turn of the Screw. But yeah, I mean, eventually we start to... Sylvia starts to say things that you know that she couldn't possibly know herself and Julia loses a brooch in the pond and uh, while she and uh, Sylvia are asleep it gets put on her dresser weird things start to pile up and we um, you know we learn a little about the history of the statue of this boy you know by the pond and it's a very old statue 300 years and it was brought over from Austria long ago and there's a whole history of witchcraft connected to it it's one of those movies where you're supposed to question whether something supernatural is actually happening or not and i i don't want to spoil that i suppose but you know a lot of creepy things happen this is a very modern feeling horror film i mean it's not i'm gonna say it's kind of cheesy in a way the the way that like a lot of modern horror films are but it's also scary creepy it, it uses a lot of the same tricks to creep out the audience that the current horror films do so i definitely think that if you're a big horror fan you need to check this film out because it it works it works on a jaded horror hating person like me so um <laughs> so, so i imagine that fans of the genre will really like it but you know it gets a lot of mileage out of darkened rooms where you see a reflection in the mirror and and you know creepy noises it's unfortunate that the version we watched is transferred from VHS, it looks like. The subtitles weren't perfect, but they were okay. But I really wish we could, you know, it's it's a color film. It's the only color film we watched for this episode. The location's beautiful. Yeah, but unfortunately the transfer is, is kind of grainy, that that magnetic looking VHS look to it. And a, and a nice remaster of this movie is really necessary. And I feel like it would be twice as scary if it looked really good oh yeah but i feel like by the end of the 60s we get at least uh, a couple of really modern feeling horror movies coming out of it things that are regarded as classics now by fans of the genre and they work you like this one right 
Yeah, isn't this sort of an interesting bookend too? Because I, my understanding, the only thing I know about Mexican horror movies is that there is a lot of this kind of gothic horror, especially in the fifties and in the in the sixties too. But you know, this is kind of like straight back to your typical, you know, like you said, it is this very kind of like modern but gothic kind of, you know, it's this it's an unknown place uh, with uh, you know an innocent dropped in, and then a bunch of potential innocents or totally evil. Like you, you know, mm-hmm. you don't never you, you don't know and until you know, and then so it's like this kind of slow burn of of finding out, and you know, and there's definitely some stuff in here that that was much meaner than I expected it ever to go. I mean, they kill a dog in this movie, and they kill a dog from fright, which is terrible. Yeah. Yeah, the body count in this movie is surprising. It doesn't seem like it's going to get that bad, but it it goes there. It takes a while to get there. And you really like because it it spends so much time. That's what I mean. Like it it really spends all this time being like, oh, she has an imaginary friend. What a freak. (laughs) And you're like, that's like, come on. Like, okay, she has she has a super cool lizard. That's super, super cool. That ties into this potential witchcraft later on. I thought it was going to tie in way more heavily. I thought I was like, that's Satan right there, that lizard. But it, was, <laughs> it wasn't. Spoiler, it's not It's not the lizard. But there was definitely way more people being murdered in horrendous ways than I thought there was going to be. There was no on-screen violence, but it was good. I liked it. It was scary. It creeped me out. I definitely had to look away for certain things just because it's just so... It, anything that comes out of the dark... It's like curtains for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I was more of, of a fan of the genre so I would have more to say about these films. I can say the technique in this film was good and it will effectively scare you, but I don't know what else to, you know, the themes in this movie or what you expect from a horror film is just the mystery of the unknown and trying to untangle you know what's real and what's not real and whether our fears are justified or not justified and that's all just sort of part of the genre that it's you know i don't know how to talk about a film like this in those terms necessarily but that's how you need to talk about it well i mean you could tie some of this i mean this movie in a way almost ties into pedro paramo because there's a similar theme about unrequited father child love that has repercussions so in in a way that's it'll be a spoiler if i if i elaborate you know part of my hesitation in talking about any of these is that uh well all right the last three (laughs) is that i really like them and and it's tough to talk about horror movies without spoiling them and i feel like the one of the real joys of watching horror from what i can tell because i'm with you it doesn't really it's too unpleasant for me mostly to enjoy it a lot of the time but one of the joys is to be surprised so it's like it's rough cuz i don't want to get too deep into it if like and these are movies that i'm guessing that most people listening haven't seen or you know a movie like the the scapular which i really really liked and would love for more people to see uh, and then, you know, talk about talk about it with me <laughs> and Bart. So it's like I don't want to I don't want to overanalyze anything because it's it does kind of ruin the movie, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe there's people out there that can still watch these. And I mean, I know the friends that I have that love horror movies are not friends that get terribly scared by horror movies. They seem to love the formula and the vibe and the effects and 
they seem to love something else even beyond just being surprised by it. But I just, I can't wrap my head around that. (laughs) I feel like you have to have some level of this surprise and fear for it to be worth your while. So that's why I like, I hesitate to sit here and press too far into it. It's a character flaw, I think, for both of us. Yeah, I mean, I I think we have pretty uh, broad tastes when it comes to movies. It is a problem that uh, one of the most popular genres, horror, is not really up our alley. But I think we, uh, <laughs> I th- I think we get around to enough other stuff that uh, it's it's not a major flaw. Let let the gore hounds talk about horror. And let the spy hounds talk about James Bond movies. No, we we're still watching James Bond. You know, so here's the thing. I the, Watching these movies, you actually did definitely, like, this opened a door, and now I really want to watch, like, a ton more Mexican horror movies. So I might just keep doing that. And we might end up revisiting, you know, some version of this genre later on. Maybe not, you know, maybe not this year, though I'm open to it, actually. Because this, is, this has been very interesting. And, and Mexico is a country that, We've been talking about doing episodes about Mexico for years now. So I was happy to start with this and, and to start with something that I don't know so well. And uh, maybe we'll we'll know it more. Maybe one day we'll look back at this episode and laugh at the fact that we're not nearly as big a Santo fans as we are going to be. I can't wait. I wonder if there's another wrestler out there that I'll like even more than Santo. Maybe he's not my favorite wrestling superhero. He has such a boring mask. Like, if I'm going to get into a wrestler, he's going to look like a freaking tiger or something. I like how he's shorter than everybody else in the movie, too. <laughs> Even the women. Like, he's built. Like, he's he's a strong-looking dude, but he's just... He's a brick shit house, as they said. <laughs> I mean, my, honestly, my favorite character in, in all of these movies, where it appears, was the guy that... Like, the, the godfather in Book of Stone, who is, like, the guy that oh, rolls yeah. in... <laughs> With like an ascot and like a sweet dog. And it's just like really cool. Everyone wants to know what his taste in music is like. And he's like, oh, you guys got a Satan problem? I got a guy for that. Then he like (laughs) drives into town. He's like, here's my buddy. that (laughs) He picked this ascot out for me. And uh, he can tell you all about Satan, you know. And they're like, what is this? What does this Pentagon star mean? And he's like, well, I mean, you know, I I can tell you, but I can't speak the name. <laughs> I like, I love that. Like, I love that guy. Yeah, he felt very European in, in these movies that feel very steeped in Mexican folklore and, and tradition. So it's fun to see that character sort of pop in and, and do his thing. Well, it was actually, you know, it was fun too for them to be like black magic. Like, what's that? You know, like they didn't, it was all this kind of like, you know, because it is this European crap that was brought over so it was this kind of fun to sort of see people not immediately be like oh obviously satan (laughs) (laughs) but it was a little bit like googling vampires you know what i mean it's like come on we all we all know so by the by the end of the 60s there was some pretty um you know shocking and gory stuff coming out of mexico there's a movie called night of the bloody apes which is uh, a really pretty popular film to come out of mexico that that the the gorehounds seem to love it was one of the british video nasties like it you know you you are not allowed to see this film in the uk and i was curious to watch it for this episode but i could not find a version that wasn't dubbed in english i I watched a little bit of it and it was that kind of ruined it for me but it's you know it's just filled with nudity and 
rape and open heart surgery and, and lots of gore. And, it, you know, you get that sort of thing coming out of Mexico, too, by the end of the 60s. I think, you know, as we enter the 70s, there was a lot more. As with everywhere else, there was a lot more that could be shown and uh, a lot of stuff that really laid on the gore and that sort of horror to a greater degree. But uh, I think I'd like to explore horror in the 60s more because it's sort of the, the last hurrah of not being able to show anything that you want on the screen. There's still, you know, you still have to imply. To me, horror is a genre that... Uh, doesn't gain anything by being able to be as disgusting as humanly possible. The more subtlety there is to it, the better, the more that is not shown. That's my preference. So uh, stay tuned for more horror coming out of Cinema 60. The thing that is not shown is definitely always more haunting, but I think that what I really like is the thing unsaid you know, I, I like I'm definitely more like I'm with you, like I'm into this horror stuff that's more heady and more about like existential dread than it is just about like something spooky jumping out at me. So I think in a way, the fact that they can't show gore really lends to, you know, playing to that type of film. Yeah. So what was your overall theme? Oh, I, my overall theme is just uh, I explained it a little earlier than I planned to in, in the episode. Just lowbrow to highbrow. Yeah, lowbrow to highbrow and, you know, Hollywood-inspired horror, you know, sort of morphing into this more European art film-inspired horror. I mean, leave it to people who've actually studied these things to talk about it in more detail or, or you know, tell me if I'm full of crap. But I really feel like some of this uh, European or, or Japanese, you know, world cinema that was coming out in the 60s really had a lot to do with this change in the way that horror films were made, this you know, more slow burn atmospherics and less monster makeup and, and more films inspired by, you know, the creepiness of something like, a, you know, an Ingmar Bergman film or even, you know, Antonioni, the, this, you know, more existential and, and, and less, oh, no, it's a monster run. You don't think you'd be having an existential crisis if you saw a monster running at you? If I survived, I might uh, think back on it with some existential dread. But no, I just run. You don't. When you see that scene in Jurassic Park where the T Rex is chasing, and they see in the little glasses closer than it may appear side mirror of the car, you don't think they're thinking, "What is the point of life? And where are we? And why?" <laughs> I think the adrenaline pumping so hard keeps those thoughts from most people's minds. I don't know about that. So you think there's a clear evolution between Santo and the scapular. You think that's like a before and after. Yeah, I don't think there's even much of an evolution. I think that popular horror in the early 60s in Mexico was one thing. And, uh, you know, that carried on into the later 60s. Those, you know, those wrestling movies were continuing to be made. But there was definitely a, a sudden, it seems like a sudden switched so we're gonna have to watch all 25 santo movies until we find the like antonioni santo movie that's what you're telling me that's right yeah where he doesn't fight anybody he just wanders through the mexican desert wondering what it all means oh el topo go 
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.